Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading it in the ESV version. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's word. Morning, and uh, welcome to Crossbridge. Uh, Welcome back to uh, some of you who've been traveling for the holidays. I think by now you probably remember that there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed. So I'm I'm glad that all of you are are here back home worshiping with us this morning. Uh, Will you actually pray with me as we, you know, join our hearts together, prepare our hearts for God's word? Almighty and ever-present God, you uphold heaven and earth and all creatures. All things come from your generous hand. You send the nourishing rain, the refreshing winds, the warming sun, the blustering snow. You make buds appear, flowers bloom, fruit grow, and harvests mature. Through each day of our lives, whether in sickness or health, prosperity or poverty, joy or sorrow, you are in control. So help us, God, to be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and always confident that nothing could ever separate us from your love. For your unending faithfulness, we thank you and we praise you. To you be glory now and forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are uh, starting a new sermon series uh, today through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, it's it's a short book, uh, only three chapters long. Uh, It's near the end of the Old Testament. Actually, if you're you're flipping through your Bible, you'd probably easily miss it. Now, it's short, but what's interesting about it is it deals with the problem of what biblical scholars call theodicy. Not Homer's theodicy, but theodicy, one word. It's basically a a fancy word uh, for wrestling and, and trying to answer the question, How can a just God allow evil and suffering? So the title of the sermon series is called, When God Seems Silent. The word seemed in this title, it's intentional. 
important. It, it implies that God is not silent, even though he may appear to be. And what we actually find in this book is a conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and God as he wrestles with the issues of his day. Now, normally, if you ever read some of the, the prophets, the, some of the prophetical books, you'll find that it's the prophet speaking to the people on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord. But what we find here, however, is Habakkuk speaking to God on behalf of the people. He's taking his issues, his problems, his questions to God. His faith in God actually drives him to desire a deeper understanding of who God is and the ways in which he works. Faith-seeking understanding. That's how it's sometimes put. Or, or credo intelligam, right? I believe in order to understand. And what we get to hear today is God's word not only to Habakkuk and to the rest of Israel, but also to us. This message, this word from God which came in history, flows through history and meets us today, continues to speak to us today. And so the next four weeks, it's going to take us through this book of Habakkuk as we look at this back-and-forth conversation between God and this prophet. Now, before we dive into the passage, I want to point out two things, and I'm going to hit on this later on as well. Two things I want to point out. First, this book is a conversation. Have you ever only heard part of a conversation? You know, maybe you're eavesdropping on your parents and then, you know, they see you and then they leave the room, or, or maybe they see you and then they switch to a different dialect uh, or a different language, one in which you don't understand. You're left asking questions. Or, or, or maybe you get forwarded a, an email or you include it as part of an email chain, you're trying to make sense of what the conversation's about. Likewise, this sermon series is one conversation divided into four parts, four sermons. So by the end of today's sermon, you may have more questions than you began with. And that's okay. Sit tight. Hang in there. Come back next week. You know, one sermon is not going to be able to answer every question. One sermon series is not going to be able to answer every question. In fact, what we'll find next week is that God's answer today prompts another question from Habakkuk next week. And so we'll keep reading. Keep hearing from God. Here's the second thing. Habakkuk deals with real people facing real questions about real human suffering. I think oftentimes, you know, we, we love to ask the, the big and difficult, stereotypical theological questions. Right? I spent 10 years in, in academia, in biblical studies, and so I get a sense of this, because my friends and I, we'd always just love to sit back and just philosophize and theorize and just talk about these difficult theological questions, not really coming up with any answers, and far removed from any sort of context of suffering and injustice. And we forget that questions like these matter because it has implications for what people go through, what some of us have gone through or are going through right now. So as we go through Habakkuk, this is not simply an intellectual exercise. It's God's word that spoke to real people in everyday experiences of life and in times of crisis as well. And it's God's word that speaks to us even now as you encounter both blessings and curses in life or challenges in life. 
So turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, 1 to 11. We'll be working through the text. So uh, this prophet begins the conversation with a question. Where is God? Where's God when wrongs are done and the wicked run rampant? Where's God when suffering abounds? Verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk is asking this question because he sees, for one, justice gets abandoned. In verses 3 to 4, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Where is God? Why is he asking this? Because he sees that justice gets abandoned. Twice in these parallel statements, Habakkuk refers to this word justice. It's one of the central themes that we're going to be dealing with. Where is God's justice? Because he's looking around. There's destruction everywhere. There's violence. There's strife. There's contentions. And so Habakkuk reasons, therefore, the law is paralyzed. It is ignored. Quite literally, uh, the text says the law is numbed. It's no use appealing to the law. It can't do anything. God's justice has been abandoned, even perverted, he says, twisted for nefarious purposes. It's crooked, broken. For, Habakkuk explains, the wicked surround the right. See, these people who are righteous, they they can't go to the law. It's not working. The social order has broken down. And because they're righteous, they can't resort to the same actions of of the wicked people. And so they suffer. They suffer while the wicked surround them. And who are the wicked? It's not foreign nations that Israel is dealing with. It's Judah's own people. Wickedness has come up, sprung up from within their own ranks. Now, Habakkuk is, is speaking during the time of the kings. Now, many of us, if I were to quiz you right now, which I won't, we, we probably remember, remember only like three or so kings, right? King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And then we forget all the rest and we skip straight to King Jesus. We leave all the rest behind because, but, but the, here's the thing, none of those kings, at least right now, have to do with our immediate context. So let me summarize briefly, and, and if you want a f- refresher, if I'm going to mention some of these kings' names, and if you're like, I've never heard of this person before, feel free to go to the Old Testament survey group that Elder Chris and Emily are, are leading starting this Saturday at church. So anyways, we got, we got Saul, David, Solomon, right? Soon after Solomon dies, Israel begins to divide. The kingdom of Israel divides. It's split into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Assyria ends up destroying the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And so fast forward a little while, and Judah, the southern kingdom, it's not faring much better. The people have rejected God. They have built temples to other gods. Until, however, this one king, Josiah, takes over the throne at age eight. Imagine your eight-year-old reigning over an entire kingdom. And you have a hard enough time trying to get them to clean up their room, and King Josiah begins to clean up God's temple. He's one of the good kings. Not many of them. 
And as he's kind of cleaning at the temple, he discovers the book of the law, which, you know, it probably was either the first five books of our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or maybe just Deuteronomy. Either way, as he discovers this book, God's word, apparently the, the people in their idolatry have literally left behind God's word and it's collecting dust somewhere. And as he reads it, he tears his clothes and he weeps. Because he sees how far they've gone astray. He looks outside at the people, at their injustices, at the suffering, at the wickedness. He looks at God's word to his people and he says, there's a mismatch here. So King Josiah leads the nation in reform. There's mass repentance, a great revival of the people. People are turning their hearts and their lives to the Lord. And it's not just individual people. We're talking about entire sectors of the state, of the kingdom. Agriculture, economic, all these other factors are all agreeing together that they need to turn back to God. And it's amazing. People are rejoicing. And then Josiah dies in battle. His son replaces him, but his son does what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the son gets taken captive, and his brother gets put in his place, but he's even worse. So imagine Habakkuk, the prophet, watching all this happen. It's, a, it's an emotional roller coaster, right? Things were going great. There was revival, people were being saved. They're turning to God, and then he watches it all unravel before his eyes. And it's even worse than before. And, and all of this, the, the violence, the injustice, the, the wickedness, it's coming from his own people. Tearing each other apart. But justice gets abandoned. And so Habakkuk explain, exclaims, where are you, God, in all of this? How long shall I cry for help and you will not respond. Why are you allowing this to happen? So Habakkuk asks, where is God? Not just because justice gets abandoned, but now also because prayers go unanswered. Or at least seemingly unanswered. You see, Habakkuk is experiencing this cognitive dissonance. There's this cognitive dissonance between what what he knows of God and what he experiences in his life. You see, he believes that God is just. I mean, he's a prophet, right? He follows God. He knows that God is holy and just and righteous. I mean, that's evident in that he goes to God in the first place. He's not just complaining about God, which some of us sometimes do, but he's actually complaining to God. He's bringing these requests before God. Because he believes that God actually cares about right and wrong. He believes that, that God actually cares about the suffering of his people. And yet, he sees wrongs are done. The wicked run rampant. So he asks, where are you? Where is God? Why does he seemingly tolerate such things? Why, why is God not doing something? I mean, that's the title of the sermon, right? Why don't you do something? Habakkuk actually says in verse 3, why do you make me? That's literally, why do you cause me to see evil and iniquity? 
Now, the, the dilemma that Habakkuk faces is a dilemma that many faithful followers of Jesus face today as well. The problem of seemingly unanswered prayer. I mean, granted, look, we're, our context is not entirely the same, right? We, we look at our, our specific situation there, and they're slightly different. Habakkuk, if you're reading uh, the book, he's dealing predominantly with moral evil. Right? Suffering that comes from the intentions or ne the negligence of moral agents. People like the evil kings of Judah or the, the people of Israel. Now we face moral evils too. We hear about it in the news. Wars, violence, destruction, murder, rape, all these things. And we pray for it every week during congregational prayer and, and prayer meeting. But we also face a kind of suffering that might hit a little bit closer to home for us. Something that they too probably experience. Suffering that's a natural evil. Suffering that occurs because we live in a broken world that's marred by sin and is in desperate need of God's redemption and renewal. Suffering when disaster strikes. When sicknesses suddenly appear. And so we're left wondering, why is this happening? Where's God? And so we too experience this cognitive dissonance sometimes. Cognitive dissonance is how psych psychologists define it as when we hold two or more contradictory beliefs together, which creates this psychological stress or this mental discomfort. It can also happen when there's a disconnect between what we believe in our mind and what we experience in reality. So. Cognitive dissonance is this mental discomfort that arises from a disconnect between what we believe in our minds and what we experience in reality. So let me give you a few examples. It's been 12 days since the start of the new year. How many of us have failed our New Year's resolution already? I mean, a common example, right, uh, start of the new year, we want to be healthy, we're going to sign up for that gym membership, and yet we haven't gone yet in the past two weeks. Uh, and so that's our belief, right? That, that's our goal. Yet, on the other hand, what we actually experience, right, in reality is a lot of Netflix and a lot of ice cream. So there's a, a cognitive dissonance there, right? Because what we're doing flies in the face of what we believe to be right or what we believe we should be doing. Another example, perhaps you grew up in church or you had people or parents or whoever telling you, look, the world is a bad, bad place, full of debauchery and sin and evil. That is until you get to college or you start working and you find out your roommate or your coworker who's a non-Christian doesn't seem like that bad of a person. In fact, he or she is a pretty solid person, even better than some of the Christians you know, cognitive dissonance. What you believe contradicts what you experience. And sooner or later, something has to change to remove that dissonance. In our passage today, we see Habakkuk believes God is just. A just God can't allow wickedness and evil to continue. And yet there is suffering. Suffering that's been there for, for a while. There's evil, there's wickedness. And so he asks, where's God? Why isn't he doing something? Now when we encounter cognitive dissonance, there's a couple 
ways in which we can resolve this mental discomfort. So one of the ways is this. We can change our belief. So instead of wanting to be healthy, we, we change our belief to we want to do what makes us happy, right? Ice cream makes me happy, so therefore, when you eat ice cream, it, it all kind of syncs up together. It works. Or we, we change our belief about the world being a bad place. Right? Instead, we believe that it's not. And we go as far as to say, you know what? There's no such thing as sin. Rather, what we believe now, it's, you know, look, it's just people living their lives. And sometimes they make mistakes. But we're not going to call it sin. It's just mistakes. Or for our passage this morning, we change our belief to God is not just or God is not real. Because if God is not just or real, then it doesn't matter if I'm experiencing unjust suffering, because then I, I shouldn't hold God responsible or expect God to care or do anything about it. What matters now, then, is how I respond to the situation, how I can rise above it. So we can change our beliefs to remedy this cognitive dissonance. We can also change our behavior. That's the second thing that we can do. So, like, we, we continue to hold belief we want to be healthy, so we change our behavior, right? We stop eating junk food, we start dieting, we start going to the gym, working out, if we believe we want to be healthy. In the case of today's passage, however, it's, it's hard to avoid suffering, right? It's hard to change the behavior or change the reality in, in that case. And look, the, the truth is that sometimes, if we have not experienced suffering in life, hardships, difficulties, trials, tribulations, if we've not experienced any of these things in the first place, it's a lot easier to believe in a just God, isn't it? Because there's no cognitive distance between what I believe and what I'm experiencing, right? Of course God is just. My life is going great. Very easy to believe in that. So we can change the belief. We can change the behavior. Or thirdly, we can rationalize the behavior, rationalize the reality, what we're experiencing. So if God is just and we're experiencing suffering or hardships or what have you, then we rationalize it by saying, maybe I deserve it. Maybe I deserve what I'm going through. God is just, and if I deserve the suffering, then it's just as well. Maybe there's some, you know, sin that I'm being punished for. Now, let me provide some nuance. Scripture does show us both examples, right? You know, it, it could very much be that, you know, there is, God is disciplining us for sin. But I think in today's passage, that's not quite what God is, what Habakkuk is pointing out. You know, it would be hard to, to say that the righteous are being punished for being righteous. Right? Rather, they're just simply suffering at the hands of the wicked people. So in our passage today, I don't, I don't think Habakkuk applies necessarily any of these resolutions. He doesn't change his belief. He still believes God is just. He's holding to that. He doesn't change his behavior or the reality. He, actually, he can't, right? There's nothing he can do about it. It's too late. There's already wickedness. There's already suffering. It's already happening. He doesn't rationalize what he's experiencing, saying the righteous deserve it. You know, must, they must not be righteous. No, he calls them the righteous. There is a fourth way. We acquire new information. 
new information that helps us resolve the mental discomfort that we experience. And I think in part this is God's answer to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk asks, where is God when wrongs are done and the wicked run rampant? God is just, he is holy and righteous. How can he tolerate sin? Why isn't he doing something? And the answer is this. Look and see. God is at work. Why aren't you doing something, God? God says, I am. God is at work. No days off. No days off. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe is spoke. That's to say that his work is wondrous and his ways are wiser. Look at God's answer. You know, it, he explains that he, he's at work, but isn't it also interesting that God's answer to the age-old question of the odyssey is also a command. And so, yes, he explains he's doing a work. Literally, it says, God is working a work in your days that you would not believe is told. But prior to that, there's four commands. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. And the amazing thing is that God's uh, answer isn't just directed at Habakkuk. It's directed to all the people. The commands are in the plural. They're in the second person plural. God is not just addressing Habakkuk. He's addressing all the rest of the people. They are asking the very same question that we ask today. And God's answer to them is his answer to us. Look and see. God is at work. He is doing something wondrous. He is doing a work that you would not believe is told. Paul quotes uh, Acts one, uh, Habakkuk 1.5 actually in, in the book of Acts as he's speaking to the Jewish people in the synagogue. And there he's preaching the gospel. He's talking about how Jesus was condemned to death, crucified on a tree, laid in a tomb, raised from the dead. And he says in chapter 13, verse 38 and following, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes from verse 5 in our passage today. Paul's point is that God is at work. In Habakkuk's day, he was, he was doing something that the people would find hard to believe. He would use the Chaldeans, which is... Babylon, the, the Babylonians, to bring about judgment. Likewise, in Paul's day, God did something else that the people would find hard to believe. Jesus came as God, the Son died on the cross, and rose from the dead for the sins of the world. So what's the message here? Yes, there's, there's an implicit warning here, right? judgment for those who refuse the message. But Paul, like what we see in Habakkuk, the message is, look and see. God is at work. God is doing something. Believe. The Lord of history is working in history to accomplish his purpose. And he does it in a way that sometimes is almost incomprehensible, inconceivable. His work is wondrous 
and his ways are wise. God is at work. This also means that his purposes are accomplished even through the purposes of others. So verse 6, he says, For, he explains, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march to the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He's at work, and he tells Habakkuk, There will be justice. He will not let evil and wickedness and suffering go unchecked. And his day came somewhat soon. In our day, it may or may not, but we know that when Christ returns, there will be victory. So God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. And just prior to this, Habakkuk said to God, why do you cause me to see iniquity? Now God responds, I am the cause of the Chaldeans. I am raising them up. The grammar here is he's, he's highlighting God as the causing force. God in his sovereignty, the same causing force which we eventually also see in Ezra Chapter 1, verse 1, when God stirs the spirit of Cyrus the Great to end the Babylonian exile of the people of God. God is working out his plan and his purposes even through the plans and purposes of other people. So in verses 6 to 11, we see this really long description of the Chaldeans. They're not a nice people. They're called a bitter and hasty nation, dreaded and fearsome. Their own justice goes forth from themselves. They come for violence. Uh, the, the passage ends saying they're guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship their own might. They are not saints. Far from it. But God has chosen in his wisdom to answer the question of injustice within Israel, within justice from Babylon. You see, verse 3 and 4 talk about the violence and lack of justice in Israel. And then fast forward in verses 7 and 9, we see those very same words, violence and justice, that Babylon brings. So in short, what's happening here is this. Judah, Judah has abandoned God's justice in their society. Therefore, Babylon's justice will be imposed upon it in judgment. Now, do you remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon, right? Two points. The first one was this. Habakkuk is a conversation. And so we're, since we're stopping just at chapter 1, undoubtedly, we might have a lot more questions than when we first began like 15, 20 minutes ago. Like, okay, fine, all right, I get the point. God is at work. But now you're wondering, he's answering violence with violence? His plan is to use the plans and purposes of this violent, horrific, unjust nation like Babylon? What kind of plan is that? We won't be answering that question this morning. That'll go into next week, and maybe the week after that, we'll see. Actually, next week's sermon is called The Second Dialogue. What kind of plan is that? But what's the point here this morning? Simply this. Look and see. God is at work. Yes, we will have questions about how he works. But first, we have to see that he works. We have to establish the truth that God actually does work. And this is what Habakkuk 1 does for us this morning. God is just and holy and righteous. And, and yet, still though, we encounter suffering, evil, wickedness in this world. So we ask, where is God? 
Why doesn't he do something? Habakkuk 1 tells us he is doing something. God is at work. Let me end with this. The second point I made early on uh, is this. Habakkuk deals with real people right, facing real questions about real human suffering. Habakkuk, for me, is not just some intellectual exercise. Some of you know part of my testimony, and, or you've heard to some extent about the injuries I sustained as a kid. I remember a few years ago before I left for New York, I was talking to a youth, and when I told him my name, he was like, oh, so you're that kid that had all the physical problems. Apparently word travels even in a thousand-person church. It was the summer before sixth grade. Some of you are in fifth and sixth grade, right? I was your age. It was a vacation in Hawaii on the island of Kauai. Last day on the island before we went to Honolulu. So I decided to take one last swim in the hotel pool. Wanted to use the hotel pool slide, so I walk up the stairs, wait my turn in line, and when I get to the top, the pool attendant tells me, hey, look, one of the guests lost their room key card at the bottom of the slide. Do you mind taking a look for it when you get down? Because I was extremely obedient and an overachiever, I said, okay. Went down and tried really hard to look for it. And as I went back up for air, the last thing I see are feet at the bottom of the slide. The last thing I think is, oh no. The kid careens into my head, I get a concussion, blackout, hit the water, wake up, walk back to the chairs, and I can't move. Can't move my neck, can't move my back. At some point, I make it back home, but life's not the same anymore. Suffering was a daily part of my life. Muscle spasms that require an hour just to get out of bed, scoliosis, a crooked spine, absences and tardies, failing grades, lost friends, weekly trips to Boston for both Eastern and Western medicine, chiropractor, physical therapy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, you name it. Actually, when Yin was interviewing for a job at MGH after she graduated, took her to, this, uh, took her to the interview, and I was sitting there in the waiting room, and I thought, this place looks really familiar. It took me a minute, but I realized, oh, wait, it's because I came here all the time to get MRIs done. Now, I could go on, but that's not the point of why I'm sharing this. The point is that as a 12-year-old boy, every time I ask, where is God? Why does a just God allow suffering like this to happen and to happen to me? I already have the answer. God is at work. He is faithful and good, and he is working in the wisdom of his wondrous ways. And it was a truth that I, I presume was preached to me sometime in CBCGB, because that was the church I grew up in, whether through the pastors or the children's ministry or my family. It was a truth that I had to soak myself in as a 12-year-old boy to preach to myself day by day by day. God is at work looking for did I have the answer to, to how he was working? Did he tell 12-year-old me, look, behold, this suffering has happened and will cause you to go on a different path than your peers. You will have life experiences that will change you. You won't become an engineer. You won't become a doctor. You'll be married to a doctor, but that's a separate thing. <laughs> Not really relevant to this story. It will ultimately lead you into a full-time ministry. 
And then you will preach a sermon on Habakkuk and share this very story in the church that first preached to you that God is at work. No, God didn't tell me any of that. I'm sure there's more to it than that. I'm still young. I can say that right now. And the story hasn't ended yet. His work is wondrous and his ways are wise. See, God's plan is like a beautiful tapestry. And being human, we only get to see it from the back with all the ragged threads and the muddy colors. And we only get a hint at the true beauty that would be revealed if we could see the whole pattern on the other side, as God says. But all that 12-year-old boy needed to know was God was working. He was not oblivious. oblivious. My, my suffering was meaningful. Your suffering is meaningful. What does this mean for you? Maybe for some of you, you, you haven't experienced the cognitive dissonance yet. Life has been good. Praise God for that. Maybe you're in fifth grade, right? Middle school, same age as I was when everything went down. Life is great so far. School isn't that hard. And yeah, your parents make you take the SATs, but they wipe the score at, if you're in middle school. And it, scores don't count until high school anyways. What do you do then when you have to sit through a four-week sermon series on suffering when you're not suffering? For some of you, what do you do if you are suffering? If the burden of Habakkuk is your burden, where is God? Look and see. Listen, God is at work. He is not oblivious to suffering, to wickedness and brokenness. In his wisdom and time, he is accomplishing his divine purposes, working a wondrous work for his glory and your good. God is at work. Take this truth and day by day focus on it. Saturate yourself with the word of God until your mind and heart exults in joy in God with confidence over his faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, and his sovereignty. He's at work. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for who you are, Lord. We confess that oftentimes we're finite beings. We don't fully understand everything that's going on. But that's because we're not you. But we give thanks that you are here. You are sovereign and good and faithful. And you are working even when we don't completely understand it. So God, meet us where we're at. Help us simply just this moment to know this truth, to internalize that you are at work for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.